Welcome to Breaking Banks, the number one global fintech radio show and podcast. I'm Brett King. And I'm Jason Henricks. Every week since 2013, we explore the personalities, startups, innovators, and industry players driving disruption in financial services. From incumbents to unicorns, and from cutting-edge technology to the people using it to help create a more innovative, inclusive, and healthy financial future. I'm J.P. Nichols, and this is Breaking Banks. So if you've been watching the crypto space over the last few years, one term that will be familiar to you or you, you know, you may not know what it is, but you've heard it, is a DAO, a Distributed Autonomous Organization. And so this is gaining a lot of traction right now as we look at various mechanisms of taking companies and the way they operate and trying to heavily automate them. So thinking of corporations or companies as really, you know, elements of computer code rather than sort of a legal institution as the way we classified them typically in the 21st century. We're fortunate to have with us today from Singularity Dow, uh, Marcello Mari, who's the CEO of Singularity Dow, um, joining us today to talk about uh, Dows in general and the work that they're doing over there. So, Marcello, welcome to Breaking Banks. Hi, Brad. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Awesome. Now, first of all, um, if you could sort of, for for those that aren't familiar, um, you know, I mean, I've given a, a very high level, but tell us a little bit, bit about sort of how DAOs came to be and what, what's the history behind these autonomous organizations? Yeah. Th- thank you for, for your question. So, um, DAOs are inherently connected with the blockchain space in the crypto world. So the, the, the big difference in blockchain and crypto community compared to traditional finance, for example, where there is not that feeling of, of community, is that these companies are built from the bottom up. So it's most of the time communities of developers that come together, they generate new ideas and together they start building it. And that's basically how, you know, even Bitcoin started. Bitcoin white paper was originally posted in a forum a long time ago now. And a few thinkers in the crypto space came together and they started contributing to it in a decentralized manner. And they originally originated the, the first original white paper of, of Bitcoin. And then this group of people, perhaps group of people, what is suspected to be a group of people, came up with the name of, of Satoshi, which no, n- nobody right, still knows. The four knows. Satoshis, right? Yeah, exactly. So this nobody. Is the rumor. Re- <laughs> yeah, no, no, but exactly. It's still a rumor. Nobody knows who Satoshi um, is or Satoshi was because some people even think that Satoshi uh, is probably, it, it might be dead. You know, if it's, if it was Halfini, unfortunately, he, he right. left us a few years ago. Um, so it's, it's very much like all geared up com- com- community from, from the ground up. And then in Ethereum, which is the second largest cryptocurrency and, and blockchain protocol out there, experimented with the first DAO in, in 2016, if I'm not wrong. Um, so they originated the very first DAO, which was um, a community of people coming together and voted voting on which investment the DAO should have deployed capital into. 
um, all collaborative, collaboratively uh, decentralized and distributed um, one token equals one vote, and they were making collective decisions. Unfortunately, that DAO had a very short lifespan as, as it got hacked few months, few months later, but that's a different story. So um, since then, the concept of DAO has evolved to, to what we have in, in, uh, in today's terms. Absolutely. Um, and so you could sort of, you know, if you've heard about blockchain, you've probably heard about smart contracts. Um, so in the world of Ethereum, starting around, I think around 2013, of course, we have uh, the likes of Joe Lubin and Vitaly Buterin coming up with this concept mm-hmm. of running smart contracts on on the blockchain, um, you know, as uh, an advancement of uh, blockchain tech. So you could sort of argue that DAOs are the ultimate smart contract or a collection of smart contracts pulled together to represent a functional organization right is that a is that a fair description uh, it is a sort of a fair description yes i mean smart contracts are definitely the uh, the ultimate enabler for for DAOs. so in order to create a DAO, we need to ensure that there is a technological layer that ensure decentralization and smart contracts are are basically the right tool because they act upon um, line line of code. So there is no human bias in it. It's just technology that operates almost as, as a decision maker. Therefore, in the Ethereum community, the very first motto was um, code is low. So there are not law written by humans. There are not laws set by humans, but there is just uh, the law of technology and the law of codes, which I find extremely fascinating. Yeah, I I guess if we're going to have autonomous societies or autonomous uh, corporations in the future, you know, it it, it is that sort of legal functions do get encoded. So regulation will be encoded, contracts will be encoded. And this is really the only way to create, you know, highly autonomous societies. So DAOs, uh, by their nature, will be, you know, mechanisms in these uh, autonomous societies. Let's get into... uh, Singularity DAO. Um, you know, if you if you uh, go to Singularity DAO, you talk about DeFi, de- decentralized uh, finance, um, and crypto tokens. But tell us a little bit about how Singularity DAO came together. Yeah, sure. So Singularity DAO, it's the spin-off from the Singularity Net Foundation. So Singularity Net has the goal of creating decentralized. Uh, artificial intelligence. So our goal with Singularity Net, and I'm one of the funding members of Singularity Net, um, is to create an artificial intelligence that it's owned by the people for the people. So the big vision here is that if we let big corporations and centralized corporation taking ownership of the creation of the superhuman and artificial intelligence, then it's very hard that this AI will benefit the people itself. I mean, it will ultimately benefit the corporation. So by using the blockchain, we can ensure that the community have control over the the one that we call AGI, artificial general intelligence, which we believe it will be the last invention that the humankind will need to make because after that, the AGI would basically work for us, right? So in this sense, the blockchain presents the perfect fabric for this emergent artificial general intelligence to appear. So um, in this sense, 
if you have a community of humans controlling the advent of artificial general intelligence, we can ensure it will be democratic, fair, and benevolent, as opposed as closed and potentially malevolent. So we believe that blockchain is the perfect tool to enable this. Yeah, we had uh, Ben Goetzel on uh, to uh, preview Singularity Net a few years ago. Of course, we've had Ben Goetzel and David, both David Hansen on the show, so we're familiar with uh, Singularity Net and the concept of uh, you know, AG, AGI in general. So um, wonderful, that, that's great. Um, so um, yeah, you know, Ben's a fascinating guy. <laughs> He's uh, yeah, I've been working with Ben for the past three years. Five years actually. He's a he's a genius. Yeah, actually, he's he's a very nice guy. But he's potentially the only person that I would call a genius among the one that I know directly. His his intelligence is just uh, incredible. And to go back to your question about Singularity DAO, it was the summer of 2020 when Ben and I started to to notice the, uh, the, 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 the boom of, of DeFi in, in the crypto world. And then we started to think how we could apply Singularity Net artificial intelligence to the world of, of decentralized finance. And therefore, seeing the lack of innovation and the lack of sophistication of the tools present in DeFi at that time, we thought that artificial intelligence could actually um, add some of this sophistication. And therefore, and, and Ben, in 24 hours later, he came back with the first draft of the white paper of Singularity DAO, just to tell a little bit of insights about Ben productivity, energy, and, and, and intelligence. <laughs> um, so, you know, why is 2022 an important year for DAOs? I mean, you know, we're talking a lot about Web 3.0 and the metaverse right now, but, you know, how do DAOs fit into 2022 for you guys? So I do think, so there has been some very interesting experiments recently with DAOs, right? Constitution DAO was probably the, the first one to break out, to a little bit break out of the crypto space to try to, to buy the, uh, the, U, the first copy of the US Constitution. Unfortunately, they failed for a number of um, mistake by design in, in the DAO itself. However, this opened up to a lot of new application for DAOs. And um, and I believe we will see more of this kind of single purpose now over over the uh, the course of the next year. And I'm also a big advocate of utilizing artificial intelligence to actually manage these DAOs. So um, I mean, we're talking about you know when we, when we're talking about AI, um, and you know you've mentioned of course AGI, which Singularity Net is designed to sort of create these libraries of AI capabilities and bring them together on an aggregated basis to create AGI. But, you know, um, when we talk about a DAO, where does the AI component of a DAO sit? So um, it, could be, it could be twofold. So in one, on one hand, you can have uh, DAO for, for, for AIs, which is basically the community taking control over the development of artificial intelligence. But we can also have uh, DAOs made of AIs, which is what, what is extremely interesting. So the community of, of, of humans, right, they will be able to vote artificial intelligence agents as, as delegates. And this artificial intelligence will make decisions for them interacting between each other. And in this way, SingularityNet has already 
partly achieve this goal uh, by creating artificial intelligence that can actually talk to each other and rate each other and review each other. So Singularity Net, it's almost already a DAO made of artificial intelligence. In Singularity DAO, we are actually thinking of implementing the model of AI delegates in the future so that people would be able to vote to, to delegate their vote to AI avatars, for example. And these AI avatars will interact and review each other and will make decisions for them within, within the DAO. But this is something that will probably happen over the course of the next five years. So we are still very early for that. No, I mean, obviously, sci-fi has been talking about AI-based agents, you know, to act as your proxy in the digital sphere for a long time. So, you know, I, I see that sort of a natural extension. But, um, you know, where, you know, when you build a DAO, for those that aren't sort of familiar with it, obviously, it's going to be based in the cloud somewhere. But, you know, how do you actually um, operationalize it down? Where, where does it sit? Um, you know, how does it work? Uh, you know, give us the mechanics of how Singularity DAO specifically works. Yeah, so there are a number of tools right now that DAO can utilize in order to, uh, uh, to decentralize the decision-making processes. There are online boards connected to smart contract where people can just log in with the Web3 wallet, for example, such as MetaMask, which is the most um, famous one. And, uh, and and they have votes depending on how much tokens they hold in, uh, in the DAOs, right? So in Singularity DAO, our token is this DAO token that people can get hold of in, uh, in different manners, potentially buying from centralized exchanges, for example, or by farming it on, on our protocol. Once they have this vote, they can go on a website that works as a platform for DAO, which is called snapshot.ai. And in that platform, they will see a number of proposals that they can vote on with, with, with their tokens. Of course, they don't have to give away their tokens. They remain owner of these tokens, but they can cast their vote towards certain proposals that they like, or they can even make new proposals. So uh, on, on, on Snapshot AI, for example, they can write down uh, their ideas and see if the community jumps on board. And we as a Singularity DAO, we have a commitment to listen to these proposals and uh, and potentially adopt it. Of course, we have um, a, decent, um, a progressive decentralization governance white paper that states that in the first five years of the life of the DAO, certain actors such as the executive board have uh, they can veto some proposals, but as the DAO mature, they become more educated and they grow. They're going to be able to make uh, independent proposal, vote it, and have it um, immediately executed in uh, in the company. But this is something that will take will take some time. As you know, any democratic process has some uh, and it needs some 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 time, education, and participation, which is not always easy to achieve in in uh, in all, in the centralized online communities. So, if someone joins your community, they've obviously got some DeFi portfolios. These are portfolios that have, uh, in terms of their value, these crypto tokens that they've acquired. So, these are these, um, you know, various DeFi projects or apps that are out there, um, you know, that are um, generating uh, return through uh, crypto tokens. And so, you're essentially building a portfolio management company for DeFi portfolios, or is it more about people creating new projects? 
No, 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 you're correct. It's um, it's a decentralized asset manager. So um, in, in traditional finance, uh, there are hedge funds, for example, where uh, that, that investors can join. But in order to join this hedge funds, you need to have high capital and, and a good network. Not everybody can actually join it. In And plus, especially in crypto, those are very exclusive. So what we did with Singularity DAO, we created these AI-powered portfolios of tokens where anybody can join, anybody can uh, can deposit their, their token, and then the artificial intelligence supported by some human traders, they, they, they just trade and manage this portfolio, maximizing the alpha for, for our community. And we already launched this, and we are having very... Um, very positive results so far. So tell me about some of, uh, you know, are any DeFi projects, have they come uh, forward to you to sort of proactively work with the Singularity DAO or is it more left to the the individual investors? Yeah, so um, we, so Singularity DAO exists since May 2021. So in only six months, we've achieved a lot and we just launched our Dynasets, which are these portfolios of token in uh, in beta. So right now we are very much focused on on the retail users and more specifically in, towards our community. But what we are going to do for the 20, for 2022 is A, onboard more retail users in, in our platform because we really are about the democratization and the centralization of hedge funds uh, finance. Uh, but also we're going to be working with more uh, traditional funds, uh, asset manager, but also DeFi protocols that wants to put their capital at work. And instead of leaving it passively, they can just deposit it within our smart contract. And from then, our, our artificial intelligence, aided by human traders, will, will proactively manage it. So I think we are the only project in the world that is actually doing this in this fashion. And so far, we are very proud of the results that we that we got. So there's a lot of talk about crypto at the moment, and obviously, you know, we're in a bit of a bear market for for uh, major crypto like Bitcoin and Ethereum and Tether right now. But um, in in respect to uh, passive income creation, how does Singularity DAO help with that? Yeah. So good question. So especially during bear markets periods, um, we realize that. Uh, you know, some users they 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 prefer to hold their position rather than than proactively trading it, uh, exposing themselves to 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 big losses. You know, when when the market crash. So by depositing their tokens into our smart contract, we can ensure that we always optimize our trades in order to generate to generate alpha. So if somebody doesn't, you know, is sitting on, on, on top of some crypto and doesn't want to think about it for quite some time, they can just deposit it and, and, and we'll do our best to maximize alpha and, and, uh, and, and actually produce, produce profit for these people. So uh, it's, the ultimate, it's the ultimate passive generation income tool. Uh, you just come to our platform, deposit your crypto and forget about it and come back when you need liquidity. So especially in bear market, this is the the perfect tool to to protect to protect your capital. And what's a Dynaset? You talk about this on a Singularity DAO website. What's a Dynaset? 
So a data set, it, it, it's a portfolio of tokens. So we see them as, as mini hedge funds. So for now, we just launched three very basic strategies with Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some of our foundation tokens. Um, and basically, for example, I'll give you the example of the Bitcoin um, Ethereum, uh, sorry, the, the Ethereum stablecoin Dynaset um, users, they, they can deposit their funds in other stablecoins, so USDT or USDC or Ether. And then our traders, they, they, they trade them basically in, uh, within, within those portfolios according, according to, to their strategies. And they just can take off the profit whenever, whenever they're ready. So, so far, for ex- I'll give you an example, right? We have, um, as, as, as you said, we've seen a, a, a crash in the crypto market. Our dynasets have only lost 4% compared to the market, while, the, while, while Ethereum has lost 15% in the same period of time. So by depositing your funds in, in, a, in, in, in our dynasets, you, know, you, you would have beaten the market by about 12%. So how can someone do that? How can they go and deposit funds in a dynaset? Uh, it's super simple. You you just need to have one of the currencies within the Dynaset. You go to singularitydao.ai. Uh, there is an app, the centralized app. You launch it, connect your wallet, and then you just deposit it. Very easy. Um, we run on two networks, which are Binance Smart Chain, where fees are close to zero, and Ethereum, where fees are a little bit more expensive. So depending on the network that you use, you might incur some cost. But apart from that, there's nothing else, nothing else that you should be worrying about. Sounds awesome. Now, um, tell me a little bit more about where sing, what Singularity Net is doing these days. Uh, you know, it's it's been um, I, I guess eighteen months, two years since we chatted with uh, Ben about uh, Singularity. So, how is that building, and where's that project at? Uh, Singularity Net uh, is is doing great. It's doing better than ever. So we uh, we strengthen our partnership with with Cardano, with the Cardano ecosystem, which is one of the largest blockchain companies in the world. And we are developing a bridge, the only uh, bridge that exists to Cardano so far. So anybody who would want to switch their token from the Ethereum blockchain to the Cardano blockchain will have to use the bridge that Singularity Net has created. So we we are becoming a stronger partner of Cardano, which is fantastic. And at the same time, SingularityNet is becoming an ecosystem of companies. So SingularityDAO has been the first spin-off from SingularityNet, dealing with decentralized finance, of course. But about a couple of months ago, we also launched NuNet, which is a company operating in the decentralized hardware space. Uh, and we're going to be launching Rejuve, which is a company operating in the centralized medical AI data, and uh, Mindplex, which is a company dealing with the centralized content creation. So, and we're going to be launching more and more in uh, in the music space, in uh, metaverse, etc., so on and so forth. So, we are seeding the creation of the emergent decentralized artificial general intelligence by creating and developing companies on top of of the the decentralized AI protocol of Singularity Net, so there's definitely more more to come under that front. What are the specific AI components that you've taken from Singularity Net into the DAO? 
So there are a number of agents that we're going to be using in, uh, in Singularity DAO from Singularity Net. But there's also a number of agents that we are developing that we're going to be uploading eventually in the future into Singularity Net platform. One of those is an automated portfolio management tool that is actually providing great results and very high yields in, uh, in test phase. So this would be one of those that Singularity Net users will be able to benefit from. So all in all, this is an ongoing development project, but it looks very promising. I think Singularity Net has by far the largest AI development team in uh, in crypto, and Singularity DAO has the large the largest uh, team of quant analysts. So together, we can really make great things that can um, that can change DeFi forever, and they can really uh, bring bring innovation to the space. And Dynasets, bear in mind, is just one of the products that we launched within Singularity DAO. There's a number of other products that we've been able to launch over six months and that you know anybody can uh, can use and can potentially generate alpha from. Great. Well, uh, Marcello, Mari, thanks for joining us and talking about Singularity DAO and how autonomous organizations are going to change the world. If you're interested in investing in crypto for some uh, passive income, then certainly check out Singularity DAO. It's in beta right now, singularitydao.ai. And uh, Marcello, uh, all the best with the initiative and um, you know, keep us informed of some of the, uh, the work that's being done in the DAO space beyond uh, just purely crypto management and, um, you know, in, in terms of automation of uh, various functions of society, okay? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Brett. It was a pleasure chatting with you. No problem. All right, we're going to have a quick break and we'll be right back. This show is sponsored by FIS. If you want to reach the future faster, you must start early. For those who do, FIS brings you RISE. Insightful articles, best practices, research, and intelligence to help you stay current and rise above the competition. Subscribe at FISglobal.com slash insights or follow FIS Global on social media to get notified as soon as content is released. FIS, advancing the way the world pays banks and invests. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta, and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. 
So interesting announcement this week. Um, you know, PayPal stock took a pretty big ding when they announced that they had four and a half million fraudulent accounts sitting on their books. Now, interestingly, let's put this in context. They have a lot of accounts. So that is still within, you know, a margin of error. But that number, you know, kind of in a, um, you know, a, an absolute sense seems astounding. And Ron, I know you've spent a lot of time doing research around fraud as it relates to neobanks and you know payment apps. Put this in context for us. How significant is the fraud problem within the fintech ecosystem? It's it's growing. It's 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 a it's certainly becoming more of a problem than it has been in the past. Uh, not PayPal's not the only one. Uh, you know, Robinhood's had its share of, of issues as well. But you know, I, I think it's important for people to kind of look at this at a micro level, not the macro level. Yes, is it a problem for fintech? Yes, but let's look at why it was an issue for PayPal. It had a lot more to do with the fact that they were, uh, you know, trying to incentivize account growth in ways that they really didn't put enough controls on. It enabled bots and you know software to kind of open accounts and grab hold of that five or ten dollars. So, you know, I don't know that that necessarily produced the ripple effect of fraud in terms of you know those accounts going out and uh, taking advantage of let's say you know uh, identity theft and things like that. So, you know, it's it's a multifaceted issue here, but it's certainly growing. Um, across a lot of different ranges. I thought it was a little bit misleading and a little bit of a clickbait headline to call them fraudulent accounts and how we'd normally think about it in like a criminal sense. So Perk Street, we used to think about that. Kate, I'm going to come to you. I can see you've got something to share. We would break it down, right? So being a high rewards debit card that also used offers to uh, um, acquire customers, we broke it down as there are the fraudsters that fall into the AML, you know, sense of the word, right? Like they are using the account to illegally move money, required, you know, SARS to be filed, things like that. But we had this other case. We we actually called it perk fraud, which is the people who just had no intention of actually using the account as it, it was intended, or were just in it for this uh, sign-up bonus. And it turns out there's like an entire subreddit community that you know goes after and shares like the bragging rights of like how successful they were. You know, just put it in context, you guys are both gonna love this. When the US Mint reintroduced the dollar coin, right, that had been a flop before, trying to get it into distribution, they offered free shipping related to it. We had customers that were buying dollar coins, having them ship for free, depositing them into you know B of A and Wells Fargo accounts, wiring the money to Perk Street, and then turning around and buying more coins, right? To the maximum amount that they could, you know, within this, just recycling the money as fast as they could, right? Because the US Mint didn't allow the use of credit cards, but they did allow the use of debit cards. And you can imagine how underwater we were related to this, right? And so there's the difference between people who are reward seeking and you know, how tricky that is versus you know the pure play you know illegal fraud. Kate, I'm curious your perspective. Well, okay, so I I listened to the the analyst conference live, and I noticed that even though they they they, they spoke the news in a, nobody really reacted to it during the conference, and they made it as if to explain it was um, limited. You know, there was no material impact. 
they stated that and that it was it was resolved and it didn't seem like a big deal. It was the next day that somebody turned yeah. the word illegitimately created and, and came up with bots because they didn't say bot during that. It was extrapolated. So then I thought, okay, what mm. did I miss here? So I spoke to PayPal and they actually did use, the spokesperson said, you know, bots were, you know, could have been part of it. And so they, they admitted to that. But then I spoke to some other fraud experts um, about the synthetic accounts and how um, those were probably created by automated bot. Those were automated attacks, but there was a lot of other handmade um, collection of frauds. It could have been small time people harvesting, you know, multiple yep. cash bonuses. Plus you mentioned the, the people that got word of this, you know, free $10 and it's a combination. And they, they said that they actually didn't give out money to a lot of people. They said that very few people actually got the money that PayPal got somehow. They claim they got they got in front of this before it got um, too expensive. Well, knowing, you know, in our interactions with the Chuck Payment Network and the PayPal and the Venmo folks, they're pretty like they've got really good systems around fraud and how they leverage their full network, you know, to their benefit. I mean, really, if you think about the traditional uh, financial institutions aren't nearly as far along in a lot of, you know, that approach, but, you know, it's interesting, the application of bots back in 2008 with Park Street, you know, our biggest thing is we would find, you know, the, the person who opens an account for everyone and their brother, literally everyone and their brother, right? You would just see they submit the same family name applications, you know, 10 of them within 20 minutes sorts of things. But the application of technology becomes very interesting with robotic process automation, the ability to um, automate a lot of this. It just happens at a much bigger scale than what we we've seen well, in the, the past. The, the timing of this is really interesting because it comes, it, it actually happened last week, but then this week was when face, I think it was this week that Facebook revealed that they were losing users. So I think maybe the, the tide is, the tide is going out after the pandemic and there was so much growth during the pandemic. And even in some cases with Facebook, I'm not sure usage was growing, but there weren't, it was a static, people were staying home. People were using these, apps more mm. and so the tide's going out the tide's going out and and this is the beginning of we may see more of this where people are going to be cleaning house they, they may have lumped in not just uh, bogus accounts but dormant accounts who knows i mean ron this takes us to one of your my favorite late night gripe session things is the vanity metrics of a lot of the fintechs and how they publish and what is an active user you know, and to some degree, had PayPal had more stringent definitions in how they talked uh, to the street about what an active user is, this would have been washed out long ago. Yeah, perhaps. But, you know, I, I, I think this is a bit of an anomaly in the broader range of, of, of fraud cases. Uh, you know, I think this has a lot to do with their marketing efforts, not sort of the everyday, you know, transactional fraud types of things that they're, I think they've got a pretty good, uh, got their finger on, on the pulse of, you know, this was a situation where they were trying to, uh, you know, to grow accounts. And again, you know, let's again, put it in perspective. It's certainly not akin to the fake accounts that, that, that Wells Fargo created, you know, yep. intentionally. Where people were hurt, right? Uh, yes. Yeah. And so, um, you know, it's funny. Um, I feel like a real idiot because uh, 
I have two PayPal accounts uh, that are created under two different uh, email addresses that I have. And uh, I was getting their emails, you know, with the promotion to, you know, get the five or ten dollars. Uh, and every time I tried to do it, it, it just said, no, you don't. You're not eligible. So it kind of pisses me off that a bunch of bots were creating uh, accounts and getting the money. And I'm a legit. And Ron Shevlin wasn't. And I wasn't. Yeah. I'm, oh, Ron, know. did you download the new PayPal app? Because if you do, I did the other day. There was eight dollars. Oh, yeah. So I didn't do that either. So Go see, I'm it. So I'm I got eight dollars, and then, and I don't usually use PayPal, but coincidentally, yesterday someone PayPal'd me an invoice, so I used my eight dollars. Nice. But that's an interesting thing because even though they said that they're moving away from those incentives, they are still using them for existing users because their goal now is to get deeper engagement with existing users like Ron and um, the person I quoted in my story, Patty Hewitt, called him uh, power users. So the super, you want power users on the super app. That's what PayPal is trying to do now. The pivot they're going for. Instead of just racking up numbers, they want power users that are going to engage with the super app. And that's the that's the challenge. Well, I don't, Ron, I want to turn this over to you, but the super app, is that the answer? Do I need to keep bundling more and more functionality to turn on the power users that Kate just described? So it's funny. I know you wanted to talk about fraud here, but uh, can't just open the can of worms with the super. Oh no, app. I teed I teed you up with super app. Go, and just you, remember you, it's you, only an hour long podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I've got a big, big issue with the, how a lot of folks are using the term super app. If you kind of look at where it has originated, you know, in, in Asia, uh, a super app uh, you it can't simply be a bunch of financial applications. The super app in Asia looks gets into delivery services and ticket buying services and uh, you know car sharing it's a, it's a lot of different um, you know pieces of functionality cross functional and well beyond the notion of just financial services uh, but the fintech industries in the US seems to have really locked in on this idea of super app PayPal announced this you know good five or six months ago and the reality is is that you know, look, I guess I guess I have to reveal my age again. And I remember the 80s and the whole Citibank uh, financial supermarket nonsense from the from the 80s. Oh, I forgot the supermarket and, reference. And so this is just, you know, digital financial supermarket. It's not a super app and it's not the answer to, to PayPal's, um, uh, you know, user growth and and. An expansion of, of services. I mean, if they want to get into broad, broad stuff, there's there's an opportunity to do that and truly become a super app, perhaps. But I'd still argue that uh, I don't think there's going to be a lot of true super apps in, in the U.S. Ooh, that's really interesting. And it, it ties in with something another an analyst told me last yesterday, because in the in these those um, super apps you were mentioning, I think Alipay you're referring to, Ron, those were what those were for customers that were relatively unbanked or underbanked and for the, the vast majority of paypal users are not un, they've got banking options that's not what they're lacking how how you stitch together the usage so of course they're they're trying to do this with shopping they're trying to monetize honey which they paid 4 billion dollars for so when you go to the when you download the app you see these these deals you know, 5% off at Macy's, they're they're sort of like the routine deals a lot of banks offer through Cardlytics. Very yep. similar. I mean, I don't know how the mechanics work. I just know that the names, the deals are very similar to what 
banks are also offering customers. So it's not like you can't get these services elsewhere. That's the problem. Now, do you need them all in one place? But we have so many different apps that we're already using through our bank. I was just going to build on to what Kate was saying. It's that and the fact that, you know, to a large extent, you know, the iPhone is a super app. The reason that super apps took off in Asia was that most consumers did not have the powerful uh, smartphone of an iPhone. And therefore, you know, they had to cobble together these type of applications with mini programs and mini apps to, to make it uh, technically feasible. For most of us in the U.S., we simply don't have that problem. And as you point out, Kate, we don't have the issue to a large extent of being unbanked. You know, we're, I think the last FDIC numbers said that we're only 6%. And, you know, so it's, 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 not, this, it's, a, it's not a similar type of situation that, that Asia had and why these super apps took, took hold there. Go ahead, Jason. Sorry to interrupt you. Well, and Ron, well, you've changed my mind on what I wanted to talk about next is, you know, if we think about why there was a supermarket before is pre-internet, especially pre-iPhone, the cost of having these disparate relationships was too high, right? Because I, as the individual, became the point of integration when it was paper statements coming to me and I had to figure out, oh, you know, for my assets, I want them in one place. So I see a consolidated statement and I want my spending in a single place. So it's consolidated and I want my, you know, core checking account consolidated so that it's not disparate because I don't want to have to be the person that bundles all of that, right? And then you begin to see, things that open up like mint.com and what the iPhone took to the extreme of this is I guarantee if each one of you pulled out your phone, same, you know, iPhone, but our, you know, fingerprint, right? The actual DNA of this thing is going to be vastly different because I mean, what is the friction of switching between an app on the phone, right? It's a swipe of the finger. What about widget widgets? We just wrote about bank of America adding a, a Zelle widget. And, and so you make these things, I've got one bank, how many different ways do I need to access these services? And when you're on the PayPal super app, it is pretty cool to, to see that you can do, you know, you can do a person to person in the US, you can do an international remittance, you can capture, and, and if you, you can handle all that, I think there probably is a customer that's getting more sophisticated, that's maybe doing crypto, and they're they're adding on crypto and they have plans to do more with the, they're doing the stable coin thing, um, PayPal is, that you could see a younger customer might move from a digital bank to PayPal's app because they're going to get a lot of the services. There's a savings account on there. And all of these, depending on, you know, we have the stratification of customers and potential audiences. And I think that's another thing happening right now in the U.S. that we tend to generalize. Young people want this. Well, there are the elite young people. There are the people at the high end that work for the fintechs that are the ones powering Amex's platinum card. And then there are the other people at the other end that are gig workers that that maybe don't have a house that are that are living. They, they really don't have a consistent channel of money coming in. And they would they benefit from having maybe more tools in one place as their financial picture keeps evolving. There's a lot of different audiences that PayPal could be serving here. It's not like it's a it's it's all or nothing. Yeah, I do think Jason though that PayPal is kind of swimming upstream with this concept a, a bit, because uh, you know I published something a while ago, a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months ago at this point, on consumers' financial lives. You know, and I try to create this graphic to show that you know the typical, especially millennial or Gen Z couple probably has somewhere between 30 to 40 different relationships 
from a financial services perspective. You know, they're using five or six different payment options, three or four different investing options. They probably have two or three checking accounts, savings accounts, health savings accounts. I mean, it, it's really ridiculous. And the idea that we're going to kind of centralize it and consolidate it into any one provider's tool is just it's just isn't feasible anymore. So, you know, I, I think that uh, PayPal's challenge is 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 really to you know, figure out how to replicate Square's success, which wasn't creating a super app. It was creating more of a better integrated merchant and consumer experience and network. And PayPal's got a lot of merchants. They've got a lot of consumers, but I don't think that they have the the integration of that experience to the extent that Square has. And Square kind of beat them to the punch with crypto as well as, as some others. So, you know, it just feels like PayPal's Playing a little bit of a catch up here, but you, did you want to talk about fraud? Because <laughs> yeah, that's perfectly ties in though. Because I, I did a little research on the um, on fraud trends, and P 2 P fraud is is cropping up more and more. Why are why P two P and also um, you know these these seemingly uh, wire wire transfer fraud and um, ACH fraud. In, in, in ITA's recent report, when they asked fraud investigators what their top concerns were and what is what has grown most over the last two years, in this order, it was ACH fraud, P2P fraud, and wire fraud. And that's those aren't new payment mechanisms, but the volume of, I think, all three of them is changing. Yeah. I was wondering. Well, and and again, we need to break down the, the fraud, though, right? Because there's different aspects of this. There's one is, can I steal somebody's credentials or can I steal somebody's identity and open an account? And I'm using that account now as a mule within the ecosystem is fraud. And then now we also need to include, you know, uh, related to that is the people just falling for scams. Right. Like the people falling for scams and, you know, we, we call it fraud, but it really is like the individual had made the mistake, whether they sent someone they didn't know money or they um, you know, gave someone access to you know, their credentials. Well, Zelle cropped up as one of the, the leading causes of uh, CFPB. Compl- the CFPB did an inquiry on problems that consumers are having and among the public um, the letters that were sent, Zelle was flagged very high, and they were mostly scams. And this is something that's becoming a big problem. And it's also um, one that I, that's what we were originally talking about: is how do we how do we make these things convenient and yet, and then somehow build in new um, controls that don't add more friction. You know, to, quickly to that point, Jason, I really wish the CFPB would hire a few statisticians or maybe even people who graduated from third grade mathematics. Um, because, look, there's a reason why Zelle is at the top of the list of, of these fraud issues. It's because they did half a trillion dollars in in, in, in payment volume. Yeah. You know, CFPB has come out in the past, you know, well, the, the most, you know, cons- consumer complaints are with Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase and Wells Fargo. Duh, they're the three largest banks in the country. They like, own 80 percent of consumer deposit accounts. But other than that, you know, can we look at this maybe on a per dollar per asset level kind of a thing. So, you know, I, I, I'm not looking to, you know, I, I, I think we got to take the, the CFPB's comments around that with a bit of a grain of salt, put it in a little perspective here. 
Yeah. Well, in much of that, you know, th- this becomes the problem in a more instantaneous world and you know, blending into crypto when you now enable people to have anonymous transactions and instantaneous transactions, right? Like if I hand somebody cash and they run away, like, is it the bank's fault that I went to the ATM and that's where I got the cash out? If someone, if I'm the one who handed the cash over and that really becomes a little bit of the downside of, you know, this ease of use is, you know, Kate, this is how you and I started with this is sometimes making it too easy. A little bit of friction in the system slows things down just enough to be caught. Well, actually, Ron, I agree with you on the volume point, but I actually also have to say that just on an anecdotal level, a couple of weeks ago, I was in the middle of talking to three different people who were in the middle of Zelle scams. People had sent them money. They were still working with the bank. There had been some high profile case examples published about people who had been sent money that, you know, they were trying to get the money back. And they had been they they'd checked with the bank in some cases to make sure. And it's very difficult to unwind these things. Yeah. So I think there is um, a growing problem there. And also the 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 volume, you know, obviously is part of it. And and the lack of any consistency between the solutions or the mm. the fraud. You, you mentioned a couple of different ways that these that actual fraud is taking place. So in terms of friction, though, I have I mean, you talk to people in Europe, they are they have been using uh, 3D Secure for quite a while. There was some resistance at first to jumping through more hoops. Apparently it's no longer, either they've ironed out the hoops or people have gotten used to that, but their fraud rates apparently have gone down for e-commerce. Maybe you have new, fresher data on that. And the fact that <laughs> three, 3D Secure, what do you know about how that's evolving now in the US, Ron? I'm not the expert on that. I'm, I apologize, don't know. The last yeah. I talked to somebody, I heard it is actually still, you know, not widely adopted here. It, it costs more, but it's but the but that may be what merchants and if they were talking about merchants and fraud, that isn't that is an area where there's still a lot of potential to um, to build out these these newer, more modern solutions that. That, well, um, I mean, yeah. we'll have to have David Birch on to talk about this, how you know we're still living in the dark ages in the US. How long did it take us to figure out putting you know chips on cards is a good thing, right? And the rest of the world had figured that out, you know. But it I think broadly, as we get into you know the last few minutes here, when we think about you know this idea of you know friction and fraud and how do we begin to attack this, and Kate, you just mentioned this a minute ago, is the fragmentation and the fact that every approach is a new approach and that there hasn't in the U.S. been a systemic approach to to go solve this. I think it's one of the biggest issues facing us. People have always blamed it on the fact that we don't have the regulatory structure that exists in many of these other countries where there's a consistent kind of approach. And now we're building multiple different P2P systems that overlap each other <laughs> and real-time payment systems, making complicating that. That all run, you know, super highways that run past each other. <laughs> so, yeah, speaking of the, um, let's see, fraud, fraud investigators said that um, wire fraud losses were up. 50% of fraud investigators said wire 
fraud, wire fraud, wire, wire payment fraud was up. And I, that kind of makes me wonder what's going on there. If, unless there are new, um, there are new, wire, wire transfers are fairly secure. That's their, their drawback is that they're slow and clunky and they require multiple checks, right? So I'm, I'm not quite sure where that's coming from. Well, I think a lot of that is, again, we're running fast and loose with our terms here. And so I think a lot of wire fraud is people falling for scams and saying something is a valid transaction, okay. you know, when it isn't one, you know, and in the ability for people to, you know, through spear phishing and account takeover, be able to manage some of this. I actually almost was a victim of wire fraud where a hacker had gotten into one of the contractor's systems of our account. And when I responded approving an invoice, the hacker actually sent me wire instructions to a different institution, right? And was brazen enough to also get on the phone with me. Oh, by wow. the way, if you think like I like ranting about Zell making me go into Chase branches, you can imagine, Ron, because it happened to be Jess and I were doing a romantic weekend away. No, I just spent the entire time effing with the fraudster saying, it's like, meet me at this branch, meet me at that branch. You know, we'll, we'll take care of this. Let's try a different account. Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind, Jason, that thanks to the pandemic, the percentage of older consumers, and by older, let's just say over 45, so they're not old consumers, just older consumers, um, you know, the adoption of mobile banking um, just skyrocketed for the, the over 45 crowd, thanks to what happened in 2020 and through 2021. So you now have got a lot of consumers, um, you know, banking online, banking through their digital tools, and, and that's a, a breeding ground for a lot of these scams. Hey, we're going to have to wrap this up, but it's great chatting about fraud in its various forms and we're taking friction out actually accelerates it. Is friction the answer? I don't think so. I don't think any of us would probably argue that, but it's interesting to think about what that future is going to look like as we iron out the hoops of how do we actually solve for the best user experience, but keep our users safe. Thanks for joining us, Kate and Ron. Thanks, Jason. That's it for this week. If you like the show, make sure to give us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform or share it with a friend or share it on social media. We'll see you again next week with more Breaking Banks.